0: Welcome to the Tribeca Film Festival. My name is Mara Webster. I am the panel's manager here at the festival. I'm incredibly excited to introduce this discussion today as part of our Tribeca Talks Industry Masterclass Series, of which we've already had sound design and editing. So now you can learn how to shoot the film before you do all the post-production elements to it. Um, We have a wonderful lineup of cinematographers today, some of whom even are here at the festival with films. It's my pleasure to introduce our moderator, Eric Hines, And cinematographers Nick Benchin, Luke Geisbula, Zachary Heinsling, and Ben Kutchins. Well, uh, thanks everybody for being here. Thanks for the Tribeca Film Festival. Thank you, Mara. Um, I think we're just going to do a couple little short introductions and then sort of get going. We have some clips. We also have, you know, uh, circus musicians and talking cats and all kinds of various fun things at some point. But first, let's meet everybody. Um, Down at the left, we have Ben Kutchins who's here at the festival here. He's did the cinematography work on Lucky Them. He's also recently done work on Veronica Mars, Holy Rollers, and Why Stop Now. Next to him is Zachary Heinzerling, who has a short film at the festival called Opposition. And he is the director and cinematographer of Cutie and the Boxer, which was nominated for an Oscar this past year, and Town Hall. Next to him, we have uh, Nick Benkin, who has a film, uh, did the DP work on Ballet 422 in the festival. And has also recently done work on Teenage, Hide Your Smiling Faces, and also directed and did uh, cinematography on Northern Light. And then next to me, we have Luke Geisbuehler, who had the film Match in the festival, as well as Beyond the Brick, a Lego brickumentary. um, And recently did work on Buck, Helvetica, and Borat. And I'd love to sort of ask, (laughs) yes, very good. And I'd love, I mean, Luke just told me a few minutes ago, it's very rare for cinematographers to get a chance to meet one another. So we're actually all on stage together, and you guys get a chance to pick each other's brains as well as the audience gets to to ask you questions. But I think it would be interesting to first, because cinematography is a a bit of a hidden art, even though it's the most visible thing in in film. Uh, So there's a bit of a mystery about what goes into what you're doing. I think there's also a bit of a mystery about how you wind up being cinematographers. So we could just first, each of you, talk a little bit about how you came to know that you were good at this, and how you came to own the fact that this is something that you might want to do for a living. So Ben, if you could start.
1: Um, I started as a still photographer. I just picked up a camera, my father's resting camera when I was a little kid. And I think that might be kind of a similar story for a lot of filmmakers and DPs. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know when I realized that I was good at it, but I. Uh, but I just kept taking pictures, that's sort of what I did. I just kept taking photos and and feel like I really I really learned a lot of what I needed to learn from uh the, the photographic element of it. Um and then the storytelling part came a lot later and, and I'll talk about that more after the mm-hmm. the clip, but I feel like as I've sort of grown up I've tried to just forget everything that I ever learned about photography and the mathematical and technical part of it and just Try to have an open heart and an open mind, and and do good work. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah, I didn't go to film school, so I I uh, cinematography for me was sort of just part of learning how to make movies. Um, I started out in documentary, and it was much easier um, not having a film background to make a documentary because you could you have the camera, you have subjects, um, you know, you're using natural light. It's very uh, run and gun, and I think learning cinematography for me was the process of, you know, learning how to tell a story. It was all sort of like one and the same, and, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I I don't necessarily um, you know consider myself a cinematographer in the traditional sense. It's sort of part of the films that I want to make. Um, you know, are, are films that are more personal, and 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 ideally you have less crew, and ideally the cinematographer is is um you know as in every film is is telling the story with you know how where they're positioning the camera and how close they are to the subject and how close you can get to the subject so um all of that was part of you know learning you know how to how to make a good movie um and then you know i i like i'm sure many of the people up here uh, really enjoy taking pictures too and I, that's how i kind of got interested in learning more about the technical aspect and lighting something and um, always took pictures in high school and, and took a lot of photography classes, but the jump from film uh, wasn't until after school. And have, have you only shot documentary to this point, or have you, have you done some narrative? I, I shot two narrative shorts, mm-hmm.
0: um, but yeah, mostly okay. documentary. I just ask, because I think all four of you do have experience in both, so it would be interesting to, to get at that as well. Yeah, Nick.
3: Uh, yeah, um, my dad is an engineer and a carpenter, like a really good carpenter. And um, my mom's an artist, and none of that seeped in when I was a kid, and I, but I just loved <laughs> movies. And yeah. then um, I went to school, and um, I wasn't very good at like writing papers or doing anything good at school. <laughs> and so I just started skipping a lot of my classes uh, to grip, because um, I just liked working with my hands. Um, And uh, so I learned about light and kind of fell in love with that there um, in school. I went to NYU. Um, But then I tried to transition into shooting um, because that seemed like the logical next step, and I was really bad at it. Um, I was overconfident, and I thought I knew everything, and uh, ended up ruining a lot of students' work, and I'm sorry (laughs) for that if any of you are not. And then then I realized that maybe you know, I needed to make a living so I started gripping and then I started taking jobs for this website called Pitchfork um, and I just was a camera operator there and worked with a couple friends of mine who were, ended up being really good directors and um, I realized that documentary was like the way to learn how to shoot, like um, because you couldn't control everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, I kind of fell in love with that and, um, and decided it was time to make my own documentary so I went off and did that for a few years. Um, with just me and my girlfriend and um, people that I had met. Um, and that's where I really learned you know, that maybe a dinner table scene is not two people sitting at a dinner table. They're getting up and going to get stuff. And you learn how life actually looks. Um, and then the lighting, I had that background. So mm-hmm. then I kind of feel like, oh man, this really clicked all of a sudden after I stopped trying to control everything. Um, so, yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, I have sort of a, a similar childhood. I, th- I think both my parents were graphic designers, and um, I was never a very verbal kid as, uh, growing up, and I, I used to take things apart all the time. And so when it came time to go to undergrad, I went to NYU because uh, I started to toy with films and little super eight films and animation, like claymation films. And, and uh, I had to go to school for something, so I went to school for film. And... Uh, and there, very often, you get sort of set up with five different uh, classmates, and you have to assign the different positions. So One person is directing, and they have to sort of choose who, who uh, is a producer, who's a director, uh, who's a producer, who's a cinematographer, who's a sound person, AD usually, something like that. And I kept getting picked to be the, the DP. I think because I was very comfortable with cameras, I was taking apart spring-wound Bolex cameras as a, as a job through school. I sort of worked through NYU at the same time and uh, mm-hmm. so I was very comfortable with, with, with cameras and I think people sort of figured that out and I seem to be the least likely to screw up their films so. but uh, um, yeah I, I, you're talking about cinematography being mysterious I, I, I kind of like that to some degree I, I like that everything that I do is supposed to be totally self uh, subconscious mm-hmm. that all the the mechanisms that one chooses to, to utilize are supposed to just be under the radar you're not supposed to be aware of them? And I, I kind of like that actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, as, a, as a, somebody who writes about film a lot, <coughs> you get into a trap of you could actually attribute everything to cinematography or nothing because you don't know the decisions that went into any particular shot. So the director is responsible, or is actually the, is the DP actually responsible for all this too? And obviously it's a sliding scale. yeah, but the fact that it is such a sliding scale is probably in a sense what you're talking about in terms yeah, of... Yeah, there's an
4: over, a lot of overlap. Whenever I, I take on a film, I, I try to figure out what my director's strong suits are and what where their weak suits are, and everybody has them. And I, I do, and everybody does. Right. Uh, and they try to fill that in. The, the filmmaking process and the way it's constructed and film crews are, are great in terms of their, their overlap. Everybody sort of... There's enough overlap that everybody can sort of make up for the other one's uh, shortcomings. Right. So it's, it's good.
0: For each of you, or whoever wants to answer this, was was it at, difficult at first? Since you're all filmmakers, you all make films, to distinguish and to sort of understand that there are there's a distinction between if your job is to be the cinematographer or your job is to be the director, and when to sort of how to learn to have those relationships rather than have an idea of how to make the film on your own.
3: I like I, every director is different. I mean, sometimes you, you are there on the day and um, the director's a writer and, you know, maybe is like, sure, visually, um, I don't care, which is not great. Uh, not a great situation to be in. And then other times, they have a very strong visual sensibility. Um, and um, I like to fight. Like, I like <laughs> to do that. So I feel like... But the worst thing in the world is to be right all the time, I feel mm-hmm. like. In, in, so, like... Um, I feel like every director is different and sometimes you have to be very passive um, and really listen. I mean, you always have to really listen, but sometimes you have to yeah. um, kind of be quiet about it. And then other times you're, you're kind of saying, what if it was here? And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think this is where the camera should go.
4: Mm-hmm. That's actually my favorite part of being a, a DP is that you can, you're in this position of being able to throw, if you have a great idea, and it doesn't matter what, what department you can just sort of throw it out there, and you're in the position to do that. But you're not responsible for coming up with every <laughs> 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 idea, mean, directorially. So th- that's my method these days. I won't try to do a hard sell. I'll just kind of like throw it out there. And if it's good, it sticks. And he comes back. And it's free. The director it's usually like claims it as his own, which is fine. You know, just we're all there to make a, a better movie. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, I think that's one of the best things about what I do. I mean, I love my job, and I think one of the things that I love about it is that each film is different. Each experience that I go to is like completely unique, and the relationship with the director is completely unique. What they bring to the table versus what they need from me, and that's one of the things that's exciting about showing up to set every day is you don't know... Even if you get a gauge on somebody, you don't know what they're going to need from you that day. Right. And I've sort of like transitioned more into thinking of, of myself le- less as a technician and each of our crew members as technicians, but we're all filmmakers and we're all we're all there to kind of like fulfill a certain need or a certain task. But the idea of a very like black and white set has just become like not really that interesting to me as a filmmaker. Like it's mm-hmm. uh, one day I might be expected to light something that's really hard and technically, you know, my all of my involvement and all of my energy is focused in on that. And then the next day it might be Uh, two people sitting in a room and there's one light. you know, it's like, there's no, there's no guarantee of what you're going to get when you show up. Mm -hmm. Well,
0: that, that's, you mentioned this when you first started speaking as well, the, the art and science of being a cinematographer, how much it is, it is a technical art, it's a technical task at the same time you're making art, and in some ways it's the most purely artistic aspect of filmmaking. Um. And, and what you just described in terms of how you now think of yourself—did uh, you have to become so technically proficient and uh, knowledgeable first in order to start thinking of yourself as an artist, or is I had to that necessarily lots for... of mistakes? It'd make lots of yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really—I think the only way that you learn. And, and I think I was fortunate enough when I was younger to, like you, probably think that I was really, really good, you know. And I thought that I was good enough that we're, I would just do really stupid things. And, uh, and I'm kind of I'm really grateful now that I was able to like have that bravado where I was able to like make a lot of mistakes and there's things that I watched that I shot that I oh why did I do that and uh, and but it's a blessing now because now I know I have that to draw and like okay well I, I, this is what I want but I'm not going to do that mm-hmm. you know and so yeah I think it's Really learning all of the technical stuff so you can just forget about it because at the end of the day it's not it's not the important stuff and yeah, you do need to know the technical stuff and um, I'll try not to go off on a rant at any point during this, but I, but I do, I do think that there's an, a way too much of a focus on the technical aspects of cinematography and how many Ks you're shooting at and uh, I'll just say like I don't think any of that stuff is important. I think the only thing that's important is, is the story like are you telling the story? Is the camera in the right place and the right proximity to the actor? is it, are you helping to tell the story? And that's, you could shoot it on your iPhone and have a movie. And you could make the greatest movie ever made. I'm going to kill myself if this ends up in the press. <laughs> Not that there's any press here, but um, I, I really just don't think that that's the important part of, story, of telling story. And,
0: you but know. you're problem solving, right, as well? Yeah. But you're problem solving in service of story ultimately. Absolutely. Rather than-
1: I think that's one of the misconceptions, and I don't know how many people here are cinematographers or, or people that have been on set, but I think one of the greatest misconceptions is that like actually like a lot of what we do is is mundane. And, like uh, we need to figure out a way to shoot the scene and frame out the garbage truck, you know? So,
4: <laughs> Which sometimes is the best thing, but right there, <laughs> framing out that garbage truck will force you into some totally ridiculous corner that that you would not normally be in, actually. Well, it literally changes the composition. Yeah and, yeah, and and if you embrace it, you often find something that's much more interesting. Yeah,
3: yeah I feel that way, too. I feel like, um, a lot, a lot um, I think on this movie, Hydra Smiling Faces, I, it was the first time where I was like, um, I think like we could do anything because it's a narrative film, but there's children, that, like children were the main um, cast members, so it was like, we need to be able to think quickly on our feet, but the limitations are what's going to inspire us. So I feel like coming up with like a set of rules, however arbitrary, will often dictate, like, you know, oh, the camera should not move in this scene, um, just because we talked about the camera shouldn't move because of this reason, or the camera should move. If you have, like, like whatever, three rules or some set of limitations, I feel like that is helpful, too. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just that you want to put yourself in uncontrollable situations, you know, and be rule. handheld all the time. That's a rule. That's still know? a rule,
4: yeah. yeah. I, I love setting rules for myself in, in narrative films. And then whenever I do a documentary, I set those rules, and they completely fall apart within three days. Like They just don't work at all. But is it still important to have to start with them? Uh, no. <laughs> what, what I do is I, I, I start a documentary. You sort of see... You have a general idea of where you want to go with the tone and, and general method, but you don't make rules with a capital R. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then you kind of see how it's going, which rules are actually working, which ones aren't. And then you kind of reformulate Just just like you do in, in the edit or right. in a, in a, as a director of a documentary. You have to kind of reassess after yeah. t- 10% in. You have to go, okay, what's the movie that we're really getting here, mm-hmm. not what we thought we were going to get. Right. That's, that's important. Our first clip is going to be from Cutie and the Boxer, which I think is a great one to show at this point. But
0: I'm going to ask first... Exactly. Because you shot for several years with your subjects, did you, over the course of time, uh, start solving problems differently because you were in that same space with the same people? Did your shooting style change? Did you start coming up with a better... Some of these questions, did they become more refined simply because of the duration of the shoot?
2: yeah definitely I mean the process of making the film was the process of just getting closer to my subjects and being able to shoot um, scenes that I ultimately thought would be you know make up the body of the film, but those scenes didn't weren't able to be shot until you know three years into mm-hmm. the process so um, you know it's just it was just about getting closer and making myself more invisible um, you know the I started out shooting interviews, which I never ended up using, but it was to get them familiar with me, it was to get us, you know, familiar with each other, for me to show my vulnerabilities in the way that they were showing theirs, for us Mm -hmm. to become friends, and for there to be a camera around all of the time, Um, and, you know, the subjects got, you know, I became part of their family, I was just always around, so at a certain point they stopped asking why I was there. Or what my intention was, or what the topic of the day would be, and it was just that I was treating everything that they were doing completely equal. Whether it was a conversation about, you know, their son being an alcoholic, or whether it was, you know, just, you know, uh, footage of of one of the subjects painting, it was all treated with the same level of importance. So that so that made them less um, active or less kind of eager to impress or less uh, interested in you know, moving the story in one direction or the other so that they would just, you know, in essence be natural and that I would capture, you know, them in their most natural environment. So it was a product of really just waiting to be able to film the kinds of scenes that I, uh, that I really thought would make them the most authentic experience and the most um, interesting, you know, portrait of, of these people. Right. So let's look at a clip of Cutie and the Boxer.
5: あれ cooking 得意うん。<笑> お前と。<笑>これ、<笑><笑><笑> 聞この。敵かな。で、お前。うん。じゃあ。パート
4: 2かな、なん それ今日。<笑><笑><笑>
5: <もうダメだあれ>。<笑>
6: 俺だら<笑>
0: I, I, everything that you've I've heard you say previous to this conversation and on stage now I I, I, I take as being honest, but it's interesting. I, so I, therefore, I can't tell if it's just unconscious brilliance that makes you be able to shoot something that well in that setting, or whether it's truly just you know at the point of you know I mean the the question I guess comes down to. At that moment, are you thinking at all, I want to shoot this this way? Or are you just simply there and that's how it's coming out at that point because you've been shooting it for so long? Are there decisions being made for style and composition or is it just coming out naturally?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think this clip represents kind of the point in which I was like, oh, if every scene could be like this one, it would be an incredible movie. (laughs) Like, if you can capture a scene that, uh, you know, it, it feels like it's from a narrative film, but it's, it's almost scripted so beautifully that you couldn't write it. Mm-hmm. it. It points to something in the story in a very subtle way that you're going to see happen and becomes a, a big theme of the film. Um, and that was shot, um, you know, with one camera, just me, um, and, and, you know, one microphone um, and a light. And I think it like, it could only have been shot that way because, you know, I was the person that they became, you know, comfortable enough where I could, I mean, you also see that it's, that uh, I tried to shoot it extremely close so you could right. see, like, the sweat beads on her face. It was a summer apartment. They don't have air conditioning. The house is falling apart. The colors, you know, were very muted. It was a very, like, desaturated palette and all of their pastels, like, she, what she's wearing is really beautiful. You can see, like... The little flowers on her like um you know on on her tank top, and little like the details were which were what was so uh unique and incredible about their the experience of them and their house and their home eating for me that that was what I wanted to highlight um and so when you could get to a point where you were where it was i knew it would it would look nice because their apartment is basically like. Set designed. I mean, it's like a cinematographer's dream to shoot in a place like that, Um, and you know. And then I could go back and make it sound nice as well. But uh, the key was, you know, making sure that what you were filming, um, you know, would also say something about their character. You know, which I think when you can't plan something or you can't script it, or I wasn't asking them questions. um, You you know, in this scene in particular, I, I basically. I was shooting for coverage of them eating right. um, and that 's why you know some, sometimes I would shoot with two cameras if I knew that the event uh, was going to be more important or, or something was happening. but in this instance, it was just me at their home for dinner, and I was just shooting it with one camera and trying to get enough coverage of them eating that I could use it just as like a scene of them eating and i don 't speak Japanese, so i didn 't understand what they were saying, so I had no idea of, of, that the scene would be also would would, would say some, so much about their character and would also bring up a theme that again you know, would resonate throughout the body of the film. Um, but in some ways, that was also part of this process of making myself invisible. Um, you know, the, the fact that they were, like I said earlier, less conscious of what the intention was of the scene or what I was trying to do with the scene. Made them, you know, more natural, and certainly the fact that I didn't understand every word they were saying, you know, made made them sort of more comfortable with just kind of being more off the cuff, and you know, uh, I could I could generally understand like topics and themes in Japanese, and I speak a, a very little amount, um, but you know, and the subjects have said themselves the fact that I spoke Japanese I think w- was allowed them didn't that I don't speak Japanese allowed them to be a little bit freer with their language and and um certainly feel like you know more at home and mm-hmm. and that my uh presence was was felt less but you know as far as like um the way it looked i always envisioned it kind of being this you know japanese neorealist film but was actually a documentary mm-hmm. you know that was always the intention was to shoot everything very composed and to and to even though in the film i there's a it didn't actually turn out that way, which is you know what you say you, you set up these goals and and rules, but in documentary you can't necessarily ever follow them, but this scene was a good example of one where it actually did look sort of the way that it was intended, mm-hmm. you know with it being stylized in a way but in very composed and and having things you know uh play out and very little um camera movement and you know something like inspired by Ozu or, you know, these kind of fl- classic Japanese family dramas. Were there um, other
0: dinner scenes that you shot all- along the same lines? Yeah, yeah.
2: tons and tons. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, and, and some were more, you know, directed than others in <laughs> in the sense that I might have thrown out a topic for them to talk about. But then after the topic was thrown out there, it was, then I could step away not really care about what they were saying and focus on exactly what it looked like exactly what it sounded like and sort of zone out as to what the content of the scene was which was i think really liberating you know as a cinematographer you're focusing on what it what it looks like and and the fact that i i could get into the rhythm of the scene through the rhythm of their language and body language and and focus on that as opposed to being like oh there's this crucial moment now i'm gonna like Mm-hmm. move in, or now I'm going to, like, push in on it, or or, or to respond, and, you know, the, I think the, the, the less that the camera does, you know, or the less aware you're trying to make the audience of a certain situation, or a turn, or a movement, or a blink, or a smile, smile, the, the more, I think, the more impactful, you know, the moment ends up being right. when you see it, you know. Mm-hmm.
3: That's also what makes that scene such an accomplishment, is, like, you're, choosing when to, like, you've got these singles that are, like, you know, it's like (laughs) when do you move when you can't understand what they are (laughs) saying? Yeah, I know. You know, like, you're like, when do I say, okay, this single's done, and go to that single? Yeah. I
2: think that's also, like, like like, body language, too, because I think I did know what they were saying, in a way. I mean, I could sense the tension. You can, obviously, the tension is from the very beginning of that scene. Like, here's this woman, she's cooking, her husband is watching TV, he never helps, you know, she's made this beautiful meal. I mean, there's so much humor and like, seeing him kind of, like, you know, trying to you know compliment her on the soup, and and uh, she's sort of like rolling her eyes. I mean, you're, you're just looking for body language, and that that tells you so much more about them in the scene than anything they could say, mm-hmm. um, you know, verbally. And then somehow you hear Spielberg come up, and yeah, I know it was such a great, uh, yeah, it's a great metaphor for maybe all artists. Indeed. I don't know. <laughs> Can, can I ask, did them. you
1: just put yeah. the light, like, outside a window? Where What were
2: you doing? No, it was sort of, like, behind. It was, like, in another room. Their, it's, their apartment, actually, yeah, it was through a window, but the window was between two rooms in their house. Um, that sounds strange, but there's... That's the it was, the like, an added yeah. an added room, uh, and so there was a window. But, yeah, it was just, like, a, a very soft light. Um, but the other great thing about their apartment was... They, because they're artists, uh, and Ushio is obsessed with everything being mobile. So every table, or um, you know, most chairs, or uh, artist easels, or whatever, they're all mobile. So you can move things around. And they have all these these um, fluorescent lights that are also movable, and all these also clamp lights. So y- it's like you're on a studio set, and you're just moving the lights around, like on this, on this lofted ceiling as you please. You know, well. so it made life easier <laughs> absolutely
0: well we should I think to, to keep things going, we should watch a clip from Teenage, okay. which uh, Nick chose and I guess we should say just going into it that this is a film that 's basically um, largely archival, um, and your task was to basically shoot scenes that could work alongside the archival bits and you used various different formats to do that. That, uh, and we can talk about it afterwards in terms of the implications of all that. But is there anything else that you wanted to to set up that, set that no, up? No,
3: yeah. It's just there's a lot of archival in the movie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we're, we're going to see a sequence which is actually mostly your work rather than the archival work. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to sort of to talk about all the decisions that, that Nick made. So here's a clip from Teenage. In
6: Britain, there was a new breed. And we defined ourselves by our youth. We called us bright, young people. It started with a few girls who liked dressing up, doing hoaxes and treasure hunts, making a fool of everyone. We took it all very seriously. Except when we didn't. The police were trying to shut down all of London's nightlife. So we created our own. Name Brenda I I think it's okay. Brenda hit the scene in 1926. She was nineteen. She came from a broken home. Longed be famous. She played many parts, but the most convincing was her role as life and soul of the party. Pajama parties, Greek parties, Russian parties, sailor parties, American parties, murder parties, baby parties. It not take long for it to become big affairs. Throat it all up in the papers. They made it into a movement. <laughs> but for Brenda, once she started, she couldn't stop. She crashed her car and then she fell ill. Perhaps it was all the late nights, or perhaps it was the abortion. Somebody gave her morphine and Brenda became London's first and most notorious junkie. Scandal, drug busts, prison. Brenda became famous, but not in the way she had wanted. Did you really think she could stay young forever? Yes, probably in that moment, we all did. We were just too tired to break away. Eventually Brenda crashed, but by then nobody could really remember care. Okay? We were all crashing. And then the whole world did too.
0: story time everybody yeah. Um well I'm sure there's a there are great challenges involved here but it also looks like quite a lot of fun
3: yeah yeah it was it was it was, um, it was a low budget for what we were doing um, so um, but that kind of worked because um, it was always supposed to feel found that was like the main rule that we were trying to go for is whenever possible with the you know with the recreations to try and make it feel like it had been in a drawer for, you know, like some kid shot it and then, you know, it wound up in a drawer and wasn't taken care of and then they found it just like they found, like Matt, you know, he found all these amazing archival clips, some of which are in there that, you know, we'll never beat and we can never beat that, making a recreation like the the, uh, guy like going in the river, you know, like I, we never would have been able to come up with that, and, mm-hmm. or maybe we could have, but it's it's so much better, real. But um, we were trying to, you know, go for that enthusiastic small crew band of you know merry pranksters feel. So right. that's kind of what the way that we shot it.
0: And well, and and there's the challenge to try to make it match as much as you can, but at the same time, the other end of that is to just make it work on its own terms.
3: Yeah, and that's that's where Matt kept me in check. It was like sometimes I would say, you know. It's funny, because we were scouting for this Bright Young Things thing, and um, he was like, he really wanted it to be in color. And he said, can it be in color? And I did my research. I did a lot of research, and, um, and I found out that Color came out, that 16mm was actually more likely to be in color back then, and color had come out in, like, 1928, which is like, a reversal color. And 16mm filmos, like... That was like 1921 and they were like marketed to like rich, rich men and women, they even like had like you know colorful filmos for women that they could put in their purse and like flappers and stuff. so if anybody was going to have that, mm. they probably likely wouldn't have it, but if anybody was going to have it, it 'd be these rich jerks, you know <laughs> like, so I was like, okay, yeah, it can like feasibly maybe yeah. we could do it in color. That was kind of how I rationalized it, but mm-hmm. ultimately it wouldn't have mattered because. You know he was right it it needed color. the movie needs color at that point and um and um you know some so that was kind of the give and take that we had was was um could it be found or could it not be and so I was trying to keep that in the box and, yeah. and a lot of times it was like we want that freedom, so you can kind of feel that mm-hmm. you feel like and it works
0: how and many so. how many different formats did you use?
3: Oh, probably ten different formats It was like we needed to look for i think that, like, the, the thing that we came up with was, like, or that really helped me was, was like, um, I felt like, you know, when you watch archival, even newsreel footage, you're thinking of, you know, as opposed to a narrative film, or sometimes, or even a documentary, or like a verite documentary, you want to not be aware of the camera, or you want to be inside of the film, but it, with archival footage, there's a story behind how it was shot every time. There's, like, that person, that cameraman, and I feel like I've been in that situation as a photographer myself. It's like, what was the story there? That person had to, like, lug this up here. There couldn't be a tripod there. So we tried to give a character to each kind of photographer person. Mm. Mm. Um, And so I think there was, like, I went as far as I was, like, okay, it's, like, a hand cranked camera, and then there's, like, it's mostly 16 millimeter and, like, um, like, uh, we did reversal. We did negative. We did all kinds of um, skip bleach printing, and, and um, like I took the film after it had been like safely put in um, on hard drives and everything. I took it like my um, my assistant camera person, who was like amazing. She uh, went through uh, and projected all of the stuff and found the clips that were in the movie, and we actually by hand took those. Um, and um, and put uh, peroxide and like scratches and you know like dragged it around the, around the ground. Her name is Greta Azula. If you're a photographer, please work with her. She's amazing. Yeah.
0: That's, an, that's, that, yeah, that's that's yeah. That's it's wonderful. You yeah.
2: It was a lot of fun. To do. Yeah. I was, yeah.
0: Gonna say. So um, was
2: any one question? Was any of that? Was there any? Pro- post processing or is what you see there with all the scratches and all the bleaching like as is
3: yeah it 's funny like we, we, uh, the colorists who did an amazing job also conform like one of the problems was that no matter what with the footage that we transferred, it always looked too good you know mm-hmm. um, too resolute, but if you had taken uh, you know a camera negative you know or, or a print that had survived that 's an archival print and done an HD, can, HD transfer, it would look that good. Mm-hmm. It's just that so many deliverables houses that, that have the archival have just you know, not really kept track. Or it's like an SD deliverable. So Sandy at Final Frame, he like upconverted all that stuff to make it look, all the archival to make it look good. And then we were kind of in a process of trying to degrade mm-hmm. the recreations. Um, and um, the recreations that are in there, um, we had tried to do a lot of digital color correction, and we had tried to, you know, like do the digital like dust and scratch filter or mm-hmm. stuff, and um, none of that really worked. Some yeah. of the, some, there is some digital color correction going on, but um, for the most part, it was like its reversal in a Bolex with like a C-mount lens that like the coating is like rubbed off with like gold polish, and like it's like you know the production designers would do all this work to get the thing to look real there, and I'd show up with this little tiny camera, and be like, okay, okay guys, <laughs> yeah. this is the film, and then we'd film it, and then uh, it still looked too good, so then we would, we would um, you know, it was like really high contrast reversal, um, but then, um, so we'd made prints of it, and then, uh, yeah, we like, dragged it on the floor, and then t- it turns out that after like a week of like spot checking every shot and like making sure you know, this frame gets some peroxide and this frame gets some salt water or whatever, The um, Sandy could go through and he'd be like, oh, I have this like, restorative software that like, restores old prints and stuff. Do you want me to like, check how that works? And he just like, presses a button and all that week's worth of work just goes, goes away, away and it's perfectly clean. So he can modulate it, you know? but yeah. it's actually a lot easier to do it, that, more expensive, but easier to just say, walk it back than to add dust and scratch
2: filter stuff. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Well, I think we should move ahead. That's great. To yeah, it's great. To uh, sure. very different direction. Um, we're gonna watch a clip from Match, um, and I think we'll be able to talk. Um, I don't know if there's anything you want to sort of say in, in, in lead into, but I think it would be interesting to be able to talk about emotion and camera placement and some sort of like yeah. basic tools of, of of cinematography that go into it, something like this. Yeah.
4: It, whenever I start a film, uh, it's very clear to me. There's always one landmine there's always one thing that will be the death of the film and destroy everybody's work. There's always one thing. And we always, it always is very apparent initially, even in the script stage. And we, I, I often revisit it after we, I see the first screen. <laughs> but anyway, for, for this one, it was the fact that it's, it's a play. Yeah. It was a, a very, very good play that was put on about 10 years ago. And uh, trying to find out ways to avoid it feeling stagey and to justify it being a film, to bring something more... To it than just setting up a camera and shooting the play, which was a very accomplished play with Ray Liotta and Frank Langella. Um, so that that was that was a challenge. So every everything that that uh, motivated all of our all of our uh, maneuvers.
5: Well, here we are by a little slice of pie. This I call my cozy dingy room. But come through here.
6: Oh, what gorgeous what floors!
5: I love the grapes. Oh, they're crap. I've had them for 30 years. I look at them, I start to cry. I'm sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. I cry all the time. Okay, guys, coats off. Ah, you want the grand tour? Sure. Ah, actually, you know, there is no grand tour. My room is a sty. Do people still say that sty? Sure. As in sty? Sure. Well, I would hope so because my family is comprised of big farmers and they would be very depressed to learn the word had been eradicated from the lexicon. <laughs> I'm gonna put these in the bedroom. Oh, it's so spacious. It's ginormous. And I pay nothing. I pay $9.75 and that's after four years. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, drinks, Mike, I know you. Uh, sure. Good, Lisa. I am going to switch you to a Chilean Merlot. Sounds great. Good, because the other choice is a Pinot I bought for six bucks, which would literally cause internal bleeding. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking! <laughs> <laughs> what? You stop. I'm, I'm patient.
6: Okay.
5: Mike, I can probably
3: I think I'm all partied out, thank you.
5: Yeah, of course you are. Oh, oh. Hey.
6: Thank you. Wow.
5: Thank you guys. Cheers. Cheers, cheers, cheers. Mm.
3: So should we, uh, keep going? We're going. Mike likes to get to the core of things.
5: I know, the type. curious. I just really like dance talk. Oh. Uh, okay, well, uh, park yourself, and, uh, you ask away. Well, I I guess I'd like to know what it was like when you were starting out in the 60s, uh, compared to what you see in kids today as a teacher. Well, Lisa, like, I mean, it's like having kids. You have kids. Uh, no, actually. Oh, that's a shame. Well, hopefully one of these days. Uh Uh-huh, I heard that. Mike, did you hear that? I heard that. Yeah, it did not happen. Well, you can just listen to the tape. Uh The point is, teachers affect eternity. You know, uh, knees blow out, Achilles snap. But once you've learned to free the mind from its limitations, then you have tapped into the grandeur that is the human spirit. And that is why I teach. And how does one actually do that? Through rigor. It's about the rigor, Lisa, not the tits and ass. I tell my kids every day, you can't go out there tomorrow unless you bake the cake today. 35 minutes of leg lifts every goddamn morning. You can't do it without the rigor, Mike. Rigor is good. Rigor is good. And when they get that, you don't need the S.O.'s. The standing
6: ovation.
5: All you need is that look in your pupil's eye when she first nails successive grand pirouettes. It's truly all you need. God, have I broken that thing yet?
0: The first thing that you notice, I think, on that clip is the high angle.
4: Yeah. Um, so you
0: start high, and then we then we come down to the
4: level of, of seating. Yeah, yeah. The 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 camera movement was was key. Um, he's a, a ballet instructor. We movement was very key to the. Uh, the whole story—it's um, it, sort of this underlying theme of movement, discipline, and, and and grace, and things like that. So it only made sense to have the camera moving. It's also a thing that a, a camera can bring that you can't get in a in a theater. Right. Um, so we do these very choreographed uh, moves where the camera keeps moving in and out, and um, when he's talking about his dance and things like that, we have these very. Sort of flowing choreographed moves that move from one to the other. My, we would just put down a, a, a dance floor, and, and the the dolly grip would just freestyle around, and and we it would it became fairly orchestrated after a take or two. But uh, and focus he, he, works that way as well. Yeah, it, it was it was you know in in filmmaking they call it doing the dance right between the, the AC the DP or AC the operator uh, this, the uh, boom up. Uh, and the actors are all sort of like moving around this the space. And it's a very small space. It actually looks <laughs> larger than it is. Um, so the, the movement was was key. Um, also, the, the framing, we started very wide. So you really establish the space. We're in that space for 80% of the, the movie. That's mm. like maybe 15 minutes into the movie that they enter it. Um, and so we wanted to establish the space so uh, we could... Have the freedom to move in and, and, and get more claustrophobic and more dramatic as the film mm-hmm. progressed and that worked really well. Or or to to choose your close up moments. So when you're very very wide and you're actually three, seeing three walls, and you cut to a close up, it, it, it's more meaningful. Right. Um, and we started yeah we started high, sort of more objective view, uh, sort of watching these little animals in this cage sort of thing, and then you get to know them more, and you move in and, and uh, we did also things with, uh, so there was the, the dance movement, there was the, the static lockoffs. offs, very strong compositions when uh, somebody was in uh, control. When they were talking about something that they felt very confident in, they, they had a very strong film and uh, a very strong frame and they would own it. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody was taking a little, getting outside of their comfort zone, if somebody was uh, getting a little uh, provocative, we would go to handheld, a very calm yeah. handheld. But it it always had this little wobble, and when somebody would move, we would have to adjust to it, which would have this inherent sort of movement or kind of trying to catch up thing. This slight nervous feel to it. So that was that was really fun. That was designed off of
0: the script, basically, or in conversation, or in preparation. Uh,
4: We had about three days of interviews, uh, three days of interviews, three days of um, rehearsals. Rehearsals. Uh, The whole thing was shot in 15 days, (laughs) in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, where no one else is working so everybody head off. Mm. But it's only 15 days and the days are six hours mm. long. Mm. So uh, that's actually one of the things I'm most proud of is the way we worked that space. The apartment had many different various, uh, many different looks between the bedroom, the kitchen, the dining room, that main room you saw, and then this sort of a sunroom and the study is this kind of funny railroad apartment. And we really thought hard and did a whole bunch of tests with lights outside Uh, we we had this whole row of lights out on the side, and then we had frames that would kind of, uh, on the outside of the building, that were suspended from the roof, uh, that would sort of get slid in, uh, either black, opaque, or a visqueen, sort of a very thin diffusion, like a plastic. And uh, that would, we could jockey these things around and and really never put lights inside. Mm. And that actually helped us to... um, give them total freedom of movement. And that became one of the, the, um, the, the rules, too, was normally when you, when you block a scene, the, the actors sort of rehearse, and they're kind of all over the place, and you're like, all right, that's like a nightmare of, of coverage. <laughs> Let's we'll do that all on this side, or maybe you don't go to the plant. Maybe you stay there. And we never did that. And, and I made a promise to myself, like, they come up with the blocking, Mm-hmm. And, and they're all incredible actors, so that you know, they didn't do anything for, uh, for no reason. Yeah. And so it, it made the blocking very complex and, and the screen direction very squirrely. Um, but, but once you established a space, you were free to do that. You see there's actually some incorrect eye lines and screen directions in there. But you, it actually works and, right. and we shot them the right way It's just that the editor uses that, what they <laughs> want to use but, uh, but that, that, that became uh, one of the rules that they keep the, the movement and to feel like you're a person in that room versus this proscenium sort of sure. feel so when they walk past you and they come back and they go around and go to the other room it feels very uh, active and Interesting and you don't get bored of the of the space. Okay. And then we have the light transitions into the different rooms, and all the rooms had very different looks and okay. things like that. So it was fun.
0: In the interest of time, I think we do need to move on to the last clip, uh, Ben's for Lucky Them. But I do think coming from that, these two films might speak to each other a little bit. And you're talking about that dance between the actors and the, mm-hmm. and the cinematographer. I think it's the relationship between a director and a cinematographer. Might, if, if, we, if we understand any of these relationships, that's one we can conceive of a little bit easier. But that's those relationships, that the physical relationship as well as the sort of professional relationship there, I think is really interesting and such a big part of what you do, actually, that it's, it's the dance for a reason, because those yeah. are the two components of that dance. And I think there might be something that comes off of, of this clip as well that we can go from there, or not. But here's, Is there anything that we should know in coming into this? Or
1: Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what clip it is, so we'll, we'll, fall. So we'll together. <laughs> Be going dark on me like that so that was the depression montage <laughs> <laughs> and every movie needs a movie. but it 's funny because none
0: of those shots are obvious depression shots. I mean oh, you get yeah. the sense of, yeah. of of that accumulation, but, but nothing is sort of telegraphed too strongly it's, it's I think it's actually quite subtle in terms of. Of, of each decision there, in terms of where that goes, I, th-
1: I think it's important to like give the actor a stage and just sort of let them do it. I think you know often we have the tendency to like, oh well, this is a dark scene and we should just make this really dark, and then it just ends up feeling like too much. And I sort of feel like you know one of my jobs is to is to tell the story in like the subtlest way possible, and I feel like. It's something I think about a lot when I watch other people's movies is like the, the very small decisions that you make along the way um, to not telegraph things. And then when, when I see people do it, it just, it really rubs me the wrong way because I think it's talking down to your audience mm-hmm. uh, when you when you make those kind of decisions. I think, you know, people are, people... I think people in the industry often talk about, like, oh, well, you know, you got to make things really clear for the audience. you got to do this and you got to do that. And I, I actually think that audiences are much smarter and much more tuned in to all of these very, like, subtle things that are happening in the movie.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that last shot is, is gorgeous. the Sort of the unseen light source and then the door opening and there's the composition of it all at the distance. Um, and yet it communicates a whole lot, but just not necessarily, as you're saying, doesn't underscore it in quite that
1: yeah. I mean, to me, like a lot, of the, a lot of the choices that we make are, that I like to make are really simple. You know, I think that often we, we have a tendency to like over, want to overcomplicate things. And I mean, I've used like a crane like twice. I've shot 15 movies. I just don't feel the need to like uh, have these big toys to be able to tell a story. I think often like the really interesting choice is like, you know, where are you going to put the camera and where's the light coming from? And and I think that those are those are the two things that are sort of the most engaging to to an audience. Um, and I, I just always try to think of myself as as a character in the movie. Like the, the camera is the is the audience. It's like it's 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 your view into their world. And and where would you want to be? And what's the most interesting What's the most interesting place that that you could position yourself? If I could fit all of you into that room, yeah. you know, where where would it be? you know and and often it's 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 really simple like the, you know the this is one of the second shots or something was was her in a bar and she sees some guy that she used to sleep with and you know she's mortified and i mean it's one shot and there was no you know originally we had like five shots to to do that one little beat and it was like when it came down to it a we didn't have time and b we didn't need it you know it was like everything everything that we needed was sort of you know placed into that that one little thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think some of that applies to, to Zach, what you did, in the boxer, in terms of where we want to be, the fact that we're at the, we're at the table with them, basically. Um, and I think that um, in match as well, there's a sense of being outside and then inside, and you get that you know, again, like, these aren't there are a million different ways that you could be shooting these things. There are different little places that you could be in, and you're making choices that are, are, are in some ways the right choices, but they're also just, you're, you're intuiting that, where to be. In, in, in terms of like your relationship with Tony Collette, I mean, is that, were you communicating with her, or is that, like, how does that, how does that dance?
1: I think that's the other unique thing, out? is that each movie is different, and each actor is different. Each actor needs something else, and I think, you know, along with the director, I sort of think it's the cinematographer's job to, to communicate with the actor and, and have a relationship with the actor and sometimes it's it's not real communication i mean in that particular movie in that relationship it wasn't we didn't often speak about where the camera was or what size lens we are some actors want to know exactly what you're doing and exactly how close you are they want to see somebody else stand in and and our relationship wasn't wasn't really like that it was it was more just based on like a kind of trust and mm-hmm. you know she would sort of like take a look and we might have a very brief discussion about it and you know, I would give her small notes about you know if there was something that I wanted her to do a little different, if I wanted her to be in a certain position in the frame that I thought was important. Because I think I think often there's a tendency to just like let actors do whatever they want, and I think that sometimes people want to want to have some sort of relationship to the camera. So, mm-hmm. and also people's body language in, in a frame can be very interesting sometimes. So. Little notes like that, like, you know, oh, it, when you hold your hand like that, it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's not right. When, you, when, you, when your arm is down like that, that's better. You know, it's just like those those little things. And, and I think sometimes they really appreciate it, and some people really don't appreciate it. But. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, that's the thing, is yeah. that in, each, in each relationship, you sort of get to gauge, like, you know, what your relationship is going to be with that particular person. Right,
0: right. I think we should ask go-to questions for a little bit. Um, we're already running a little bit late, so... Um, first question, how many people here are cinematographers or have shot films?
6: Oh, nice. That's
0: great. Yeah,
4: that's great. There's a question back here. Yes. Can you, you, you've talked a lot about your process. Can you talk about your preparation on the day of filming? Like, are you sketching out your ideas? Do you just already have it in your head? Um, just talking through you know, what it's like the morning before or, or like a few, few hours leading up to the shoot. Uh, question for each one of you. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I guess I'll just start. I, I mean, the preparation for the, for the day is, is different, and that's the, I think that's the thing that, you know, one of the reasons I said before that I love what I do. It's like each day is, brings a new set of challenges. I mean, I think the most important thing is that you sort of check in with the, with the director and say, like, all right, what's the, what do you really need today? Like, what's the, what are you worried about, and, you know, what can I do to help that? You know the, how how can you be most useful, and and also just to look at your your day with the rest of your crew and talk about like what do you want to spend time on, what are you afraid of, what's going to be the most time consuming. You know those sort of like initial conversations, um, and I think often you have big plans and big ideas, and yeah, those are dashed quickly, and you better just get down to the nuts and bolts of it.
2: Yeah, I mean I've less experience I think shooting narrative where there's a lot more preparation but I mean um, in documentary there's virtually there's very little uh, preparation time and maybe that's what sort of makes it more fun and your flexibility is the key to preparation in my mind it's having like the being able to be as flexible as possible and um, um, I mean I, and I, I was going to say one other thing um, in seeing your clip I think in the little experience I do have with narrative it seems like perspective is the most important deciding factor in eliminating shots um, when I see like what the amount of shots that you've planned is and then what you end up actually shooting it's like you can determine that by the what the perspective is what what character's perspective the scene is being played out from because you you realize like after and this is coming more from the director side but after that you've Shot the scene that you might just use the one shot for the entire scene that explains the perspective of the character in the most uh in the most efficient and effective way, so you might not need you know if it's a if it's a shot if it's a conversation of between two people you might not you might only need the you know the the p o v of the person that um, whose scene it is and that could be the entire scene can play out in that in that shot and can be a lot more effective and really you know, immerse you in that character in a lot more um, just a powerful way. And I think for me, that's what's been like this whole learning experience of moving into to fiction for me is is like how do you um, how do you prepare but allow yourself to eliminate a lot of the preparation and feel what what is working on the day that you're shooting and, and go with that. So like allotting yourself like preparing to be flexible, I guess that would be the what seems to be the most important thing in the little experience I have in narrative.
3: Yeah, yeah I mean, just to echo that, yeah, totally. It's like, um, you know, you want to over-prepare, or I feel, I feel like I always want to over-prepare, but it's really, like, about developing, especially, you know, um, when you're working with a director, you, you don't every, every director's got their idiosyncrasies and, and. Um, and that's kind of like the key to figuring out a shorthand with them, you know, like what their taste is, and 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 also, so a director kind of learns your taste. You want to, I like to scout a lot, you know, like over scout. Like if if they have a location in mind, try to get there two three times, you know, so that you can just say like, okay, where do you want to put the camera in case you know, and then, and then, you you know, yeah, you make a laundry list of, like, of shots, and then you're, like, you're not going to get any of the, you know, you're going to get 20% of those, or, you know, maybe you just have one shot, but that kind of shorthand is, like, what I try to develop, um, so that when you're there on the day, it's largely wordless, I feel like, in the best case, when you're, when you're working with a good director, you're just, like, um, you know the camera should go here or here and and it's and and a lot of directors don't get involved in lighting but some do um and that's the part that takes a really long time usually i feel like is like they're like why are you falling behind with the lighting time and um or some other thing goes wrong um i think that's the trick is just being being very attuned to all the personalities that are going on um like when the actors meet them and that's the preparation that I do. I, I, I haven't worked on, any large, on sets large enough to um, do diagrams or anything like that. Um, and I find that oftentimes you get there and your gaffer hasn't necessarily seen um, the space. Hopefully they have, but sometimes they haven't. And then you talk about it and your lighting diagram, if you made one, might not make a lot of sense. And their taste, they've worked on more. They're lighting every single day when you're like prepping and shooting and so sometimes you want to take their advice um, so sometimes you have a very very planned out thing and then other times it's like okay um, I just hope that I know all these people well enough and that's the most important part. Luke do you have anything to add to that?
4: Uh, yeah I mean I, I agree I, I think in my best relationships with the director I, I, I stop talking to them all together like <laughs> we just don't talk and, and actually there's a lot of communication going on mm-hmm. but it's through a monitor actually mm-hmm. you're, you're showing them what what your intent is. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm not big on, uh, uh, I, I like shot listing, I don't like storyboarding. Storyboarding to me is too uh, precise and it never fits into what you're trying, what you're actually seeing in the end of the day. And, and shot listing uh, is loose enough, but specific enough to give you a guide, with, but still give you that room you were talking about where you can just sort of uh, be free enough to, to see what happens and, and capitalize on what what great thing is happening mm-hmm. when it does. Mm-hmm. Another question?
0: Yes?
6: Um, I was just wondering how you partnered up or ended up being asked to join the team for your movie. Did you already have
0: So, so in, basically, in general, a question like, I guess specifically for the most recent films, but I think maybe in general it would be good to talk about briefly, I guess, the, um, whether the projects that they're working on have come from collab, previous collaborations or whether they've sort of been hired uh, to work on,
4: on a film. I, mean, I think or, the, whole, the whole industry sort of works on personal references, right? People only trust the people they can sort of track back to somebody that they trust in a way. So... which which is what's great about working on the feature film. You work with a ton of different people, and then they go off to a ton of different films, and you just do the best work you can initially, and then then your name slowly gets out. But usually there's some connection that said, yes, I work with this guy. He's great. Um, I also find references are are great whenever you're on the other end of that and you have to hire somebody Mm -hmm. to call about three people off their IMDb list randomly. That's a good one. (laughs) (laughs) That That tells you a lot
3: uh i I knew a lot of people from school because um, i went to n y u but um or just from the movies that i worked on um but um but i wouldn 't have gotten those jobs um just because i was friends with them i feel like um apprenticeship and the and apprenticeship and mentorship in the yeah it 's like people that you know it 's really important like to work for other d p s you know uh, other d p s that work like they're going to recommend you uh, a lot. I feel like that—that's—that's that's how I got a lot of work. Was like another DP that I had gripped for or seed for. That's kind of how I got into shooting. Um, but I don't. Um, everybody's career is so different that that's how this what worked for me. But I try to try to develop that kind of anybody that that I really feel like I want to work with a lot of filmmakers. You know, so anybody that's working with me, I feel like I, you know. If, if I can't do a job, I want to recommend them, because that's what, that's what happened to me. Um, and I'm just starting out. But it's been very nice to have that kind of flow through. We
0: have time for like one more question, unless you guys have anything to add to any of this. One more. Yes, sir? The question is about films that they find visually stunning or inspirational for, them, for their work.
1: Uh, I'll just jump in and say uh, Seven Samurai is one of the first movies that I ever saw. and. Uh, and I and I think I'll just I will never forget as long as I live some of those scenes of like the boy and the girl running through the woods, and I and I think that we're always we're always trying to uh, or I'm always trying to create some sort of memory something that feels like a memory. I think that's when a movie feels really comfortable is when it feels like a memory, and that's why we get to do things that are exciting with lighting that might not be real realistic in what the space really looked like. But how did it feel to you, and how did how did you remember it? And I think in that movie created that
2: um, I, I went to school I went to school for art and I remember my, the first class I took that made me think about making films was this contemporary Russian cinema class and um, nostalgia uh, <laughs> which I'm sure you guys all know by Tarkovsky I think it's the first movie I saw and I was it's like you know it was like painting with a camera I mean every shot is a a beautiful metaphor for something. And, um, you know, it's the, the kind of film you can watch like 15 times and, and, uh, and you just want to see it again and again because it's so, so beautiful. Um, so I wouldn't ne- at, at all say that it isn't necessarily an inspiration for the work I do, but more as an inspiration for how uh, powerful, you know, the film image can be as opposed to a photograph.
3: It's really hard to pick two uh but i will two just pick one one's fine. <laughs> <laughs> i mean this is amazing but uh but um Gordon Willis is like one of my favorite cinematographers, arguably the best um uh but um i I really love Clute I saw that i i had seen the Godfather and that's like. I feel like what I probably should say, but I really love Klute just because it seems like it was like the first time. It feels new, like doing that with Shadow is just like, oh my God. And then, um, I, I feel like, um, I, for some reason it's, I mean there's a million, but for some reason I'm thinking about g- Gimme Shelter right now, mostly because I was thinking about the, I remember a, s- a friend of mine showed that to me, like the scene where they are listening to wild horses being mastered and, um, yeah, it's like he has one shot to get that, and he's got like a, you know, ten-minute mag, and he's got to make choices. And <laughs> I just th- think that, you know, I mean, the song's brilliant, so it's going to work no matter what. But it's just the way Mazels, you know, makes movies and shoots movies is like from another era. You know, you can't do that. I mean, digitally, just digital just doesn't make you think that way anymore. And um, and I try to think that way still. Like, what would I do if I only had,
4: you know, a
3: 10-minute mag, you know,
4: kind of thing? I think uh, two films I saw in my formative years that really stuck with me, and for totally different reasons, is uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Because it's so epic and, and controlled and purposeful and symbolic. The photography of it is just incredible. And it works so well with the production design. There's such incredible control over those images. And then... The other one that really stuck with me for totally opposite reasons is uh, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, because it's so crazy. It, it, it's, it's so loose and nutty and seemingly freeform, but also very planned and very purposeful and very meaningful. And, and all the shots are, uh, convey in, incredible things. Um, but I think there's, there's things to learn from both of Very different, but both feel like they have infinite possibility. And, and incredibly infected, effective.
0: With that, thank you, everybody, for coming out. Thank you.